So welcome back to The Build Podcast. I'm excited to have Nir Ayal here with us. Nir, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For sure. I've both read your writing and listened to you speak, so I am very excited to pick your brain today. But maybe before we dive into learning about distractions and how not to get distracted while we're all trying to get things done in our lives, first, would you mind just giving a quick background for those who aren't as familiar with your work? Sure. I am what you call a behavioral designer. So my job is to help companies design the kind of products and services that people use habitually. So I work with healthcare companies, I work with consumer apps, SaaS products, financial institutions, media companies, anyone who wants to create the kind of product and service that can improve people's lives if they would only use the darn product. (laughs) So this came out of a course I taught at Stanford at the Graduate School of Business and the Design School as well. And that led me to write my first book, Hooked, which is all about how to build habit-forming products. And then uh, about five years ago, I started working on the flip side. If Hooked is about building good habits, I wanted to explore how do we break bad habits, specifically these bad habits around distraction that I found in my own life that as technology became so pervasive and persuasive, that many times I wasn't doing what I said I was going to do. I would sit with my daughter and want some quality time with her, and yet I'd find myself checking my phone. I'd sit down at my desk to work on a big project and yet found myself getting distracted with something trivial and not that important. I'd say I was going to work out, but I wouldn't. And so I I discovered that the big problem that I think we face today is no longer an information gap. Information is so readily accessible, we all basically know what to do, right? Who doesn't basically know how to lose weight or how to have a better relationship with your family and friends? Be fully present is a good start or how to excel at your job, right? We, we all know what to do. You got to do the hard work, especially the stuff other people don't want to do. And frankly, if you don't know what to do, we all have access to Google, right? It's all there out for, it's all there on the internet for you if you, if you search for it. So the problem is no longer not knowing what to do. The problem is that we don't understand why we don't do the things we know we should do. Why do we keep lying to ourselves? We say we're going to do one thing and we don't do the very thing we clearly know we should. Why? And wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, talk about a superpower. That would be a superpower, the power to become indistractable, to always do whatever it is you said you were going to do without getting sidetracked, without getting distracted. And so that's really what I wanted to learn for myself and why I wrote Indistractable. That definitely does sound like a superpower that I would love to have. I am working on it currently (laughs) by trying to close out applications on my computer when I'm doing my work, but I definitely have a long way to go. But I'm curious to understand your take on technology specifically and its role in this, because certainly we can get distracted by many things, but you brought up messaging when you're with your daughter or earlier when we were speaking before we hopped on, we talked about closing out Slack or messages to not get distracted by that. So in your view, is tech technology playing a big role in making people distracted? Or is it more so just another outlet that people are getting distracted by that would otherwise be filled with something else? Yeah, so distraction is not a new problem. I I expected that uh, as I explored the psychology of distraction, I was expecting to write a book about what technology is melting your brain. And it's just not true that technology is just the latest boogeyman. And if we look historically, people have always thought that whatever new technology would be the death of everyone's ability to focus and concentrate. It was going to melt our brains and be super addictive. And verbatim, the words that people use today to describe technology as 
as hijacking your brain and addictive and all these terms is exactly what people said word for word about comic books and rock and roll music and the novel and television. And somehow mankind has adapted and adopted these new technologies to fix the last generation of distracting technology. And so I think we see a similar process right now. I will say though, that because technology is so pervasive and so persuasive these days, that if you are not equipped to deal with distraction, if you don't become indistractable, if you don't teach your kids to become indistractable, then you will become a victim of distraction. That there will be a bifurcation of people who stand up and say, I will control my attention, I will control my time, I will control my life, and there will be a group of people who allow their time, their attention, their lives to be controlled and manipulated by others. So this has to be an active process because the price of progress, the price of living in a world with so many good things in it. And I think we see something very analogous to what happened with food production around the world. I mean, this is the first time in 200,000 years of human history that there are enough calories to feed every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. That's never happened before. Famine is largely a thing of the past, and that's something that had plagued humanity since the species first evolved. The cost of that progress is that now we have diseases of excess, obesity and diabetes and heart disease. And so the solution is not to go backwards. The solution is to learn how to both live in a world with such wonderful things, to live in a world without famine, but also learn how to get the best out of these inventions without letting them get the best of us. And I think we see something very similar happening with potential distractions. We like the fact that Netflix is so entertaining. We want technologies to be engaging and user-friendly. But that also means that if we're not careful, that these things can suck our time and attention. So we need to learn techniques to become indistractable. So basically, technology is making it easier for us to get distracted because there are more opportunities to easily access it or to access places to channel our distraction, but it's not the inherent root of the issue. Right. There is no technology that I have seen to date that we cannot put in its place. It's a ridiculous excuse that people say, oh, you know, technology is so addictive. Look what it's doing to my kids. Look what it's doing to me. This actually leads to what we call learned helplessness, that this rhetoric that we see in the media, you see these articles in the New York Times and on BuzzFeed and all over the internet about how technology is melting your brain and it's addictive. It's this and it's that. And of course, those companies make money the same way Facebook does, right? They sell your attention to advertisers. The New York Times does it. The Wall Street Journal does it. BuzzFeed does it. They all make money the same way. They monetize your attention. And they know that by scaring you, that these companies are doing this to you, that you will click more and you will read more articles and you will waste more of your time. It really is the pot calling the kettle black when it comes to these media companies. What they're not telling you is that by believing this rhetoric that you are powerless, you actually make it true. This is called learned helplessness, that when we believe there's nothing we can do about it, when we use language like it's addicting you and it's hijacking your brain, we are making it true because turns out people stop trying. And that's exactly what I want to fight. Are these technologies pervasive and persuasive? Yes. Is it that if you are looking for distraction, it's easier than ever to find? Yes. Are we powerless? Absolutely not. And so that's why I wrote Indistractable, is because it turns out that we are much more powerful than we think. So then given that, what is it that's causing us to get distracted? Well, what's causing us to get distracted is, is the fact that we are using distraction 
for the same reason that people always have. Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest. And the underlying root cause of distraction cannot be the technology. If Plato was talking about it 2,500 years ago before the iPhone, clearly it's not the technology doing it to us. The reason we get distracted is not because of what's outside of us, not the external triggers. They play a role, the pings and dings and rings. The real reason we get distracted is the real reason we do everything which is the desire to escape discomfort. And so this is the icky sticky truth that a lot of people have trouble coming to grips with, that the reason we get distracted, the root cause of why we do things we don't want to do, things that we later regret, is because it feels better. It helps us take our mind off of our feelings. So when we are feeling lonely, check Facebook. When we are uncertain, Google. When you're bored, check the news, hear about somebody else's problems somewhere halfway around the world, as opposed to having to think about your own problems. Check Reddit, check stock prices, check sports scores, check Pinterest, whatever, to take your mind off of something you don't want to feel. And so whether it's too much Facebook, too much booze, too much work, too much anything, it is always about an emotion regulation problem. And so that's why it's so important for us to understand the first step to becoming indistractable is to master our internal triggers. Because here's the big shocker. Here's the revelation. Time management is pain management. That I don't care what life hacks you've heard, what every productivity guru is espousing these days. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff works unless you first deal with the internal trigger, the discomfort that drives us towards distraction. Now, it's not that discomfort is necessarily a bad thing. I think one of the things that the self-help community has really not served us well is that they preach, many people preach, that feeling bad is bad. That if you're not happy all the time, that if you're not satisfied with your life all the time, something must be wrong with you, right? You need to go medicate. You need to go fix yourself if you're not happy all the time. And nothing could be further from the truth, that from an evolutionary basis, we are designed for dissatisfaction. Happiness is only meant to be a fleeting sensation. If you think about it from an evolutionary basis, a species that is constantly happy and content is not a species that survives for very long. It's the fact that we are always searching for more, striving, wanting, creating, inventing. That is what helped our species progress. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. We need to stop buying into this BS that feeling bad is bad. It's not bad. It's about harnessing that sensation to lead us towards traction, healthy behaviors versus distraction, harmful behaviors that lead us off track. So how do you think about taking the first steps of instead of going to that traditional distracted outlet, instead taking the time to reflect and and do something more productive with that feeling or realization? Yeah. So the first step to mastering internal triggers is to reimagine them. And so there are many techniques I describe in the book that you can use, and it's all based on peer-reviewed studies. So I cite research from acceptance and commitment therapy and, and many other disciplines to help teach folks how to deal with that discomfort in a healthier way. And there's turns out that a lot of what we believe is really self-defeating. There are a lot of bits of folk psychology that people believe that really does hurt us. One of the prevalent myths is around abstinence. <laughs> there are books written today, and we hear some people profess that we should go on a digital detox, that we should do a 30-day minimalist plan. And I'm going to tell you that stuff doesn't work. And here's why it doesn't work. For the same reason 
that it didn't work for me when I was clinically obese. So I used to be clinically obese and I would go on these 30 day diets, no carbs for 30 days, no this, no that for 30 days. And of course, at the end of the 30 days, guess what happened? (laughs) I'd stuff my face full of the stuff that I was denying myself. And I would come back with a vengeance because I hadn't dealt with really why I was overeating. I wasn't eating because I was hungry. I was eating my feelings. When I was feeling bad about myself, I would eat. When I was bored, I would eat. When I was mad at myself for overeating, I would eat. And if we don't deal with that and understand what it is we are looking to escape when we do too much of any distracting activities. And when we go off track and do something we later regret, that's where we have to start. So it doesn't make sense to have strict abstinence. What we need to do is to learn how to master these internal triggers by having a different set of tools. So one technique I talk about in the book that's very effective is called the 10-minute rule, where what we do with the 10-minute rule is to tell ourselves we can give in to any distraction, whether it's checking your phone or eating that piece of chocolate cake or smoking that cigarette, whatever it might be, whatever that distraction is, that thing you don't want to do, you can give into it in just 10 minutes. And in those 10 minutes, your job is to do what's called surf the urge. And I teach you exactly how to do this in the book. I teach you this technique for just sitting with a sensation, not judging it, not being contemptuous about it, but exploring it with curiosity. And it turns out that this technique of just telling yourself, yep, I can give in to that distraction in just 10 minutes is a very effective way to disarm the pull of these urges. Another thing that we can do when it comes to mastering internal triggers is to change our temperament. Many of us have these very counterproductive views of our own personality. And it takes many forms, a lot of pseudoscience out there. Myers-Briggs is a great example. Myers-Briggs is not real, guys. It's not supported by real science. I hate to bust your bubble here. Many people put on labels onto themselves. I'm a morning person. I'm a this Myers-Briggs type. I have bad attention span. I'm lazy. I'm this, I'm that. We have all these self-images that turn out not to serve us. And I'll give you a great example. A few years ago, there were studies done around what's called ego depletion. Ego depletion is this idea that willpower is a depletable resource, that you run out of willpower. The way this worked in my life, I didn't know it was called ego depletion at the time, but when I started writing this book, I had this bad habit of every night I would come home and I'd say, oh, I had such a hard day at work, I'm spent, right? I have nothing left. How can I possibly make good decisions? I've had such a hard day, give me that Ben and Jerry's ice cream, I'm gonna sit down on the couch and I'm gonna watch Netflix. I chalked it up as the reason was, well, I'm spent, right? That was the word I would tell myself. I'm spent. I have nothing left. And it turns out that there were some studies that showed that ego depletion was a phenomenon that was observed in these early studies, that people really did run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank. Fortunately, this is the way the scientific process works. Other psychologists looked at these studies and said, you know what, there's something fishy going on here. And what we do in the scientific community, when a study sounds fishy, we replicate it. We run the study again to see if we can get similar results. Well, it turns out after hundreds of studies, we can't find ego depletion replicates. It looks like it's not real, except in one group of people that the work of Carol Dweck at Stanford found that one group of people really did exhibit ego depletion And those people, and only those people, really did run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank. And who were these people? People who believed that their willpower was a limited resource. 
This is one of many, many techniques that we can use to change our temperament, to understand that these self-limiting beliefs oftentimes backfire, that we want to make sure that we ask ourselves whether our beliefs around our temperament are serving us or are we serving them? So those are just some of the techniques under this very first step of mastering the internal triggers. The other three steps after we master the internal trigger, step number two is about making time for traction. Step number three is about hacking back the external triggers. And step number four is about preventing distraction with packs. And it's when we use these four techniques in concert, this is how we become indistractable. So my key job over the past five years of researching and writing this book was to separate the wheat from the chaff. There's so much misinformation out there that really does harm people. And then what I wanted to do was to separate the science, the real reasons why we get distracted from a lot of these folk psychology and stuff that turns out to backfire. Do you find that over time, folks just get distracted less once they're practicing the 10-minute rule, once they're practicing changing their temperament in the moment when they feel like they have no control over their willpower? Or is this something where you'll be using these tools lifelong? You never stop becoming indistractable, just like you never stop becoming creative, right? You, you, never, you never wake up one day and say, oh, I'm creative today, <laughs> right? Like it's something you practice and you accrue, you can become more creative over time. You can harness the skill set to help you do what you say you're going to do. You never stop practicing these techniques. The big revelation I think that people enjoy from this is that they can identify why they get distracted and systematically do something about it. So there's a, a really wonderful quote by Poela Coelho who said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. And I think that's so poignant when it comes to distraction because so many of us, we get distracted by the same things again and again and again. How many of us, we have a to-do list that yet again, we didn't accomplish everything on our to-do list. I call this the tyranny of the to-do list. And this was me five years ago before I started this line of research. I would have this big, long to-do list, and I wouldn't get everything done. So I'd recycle it from one day to the next to the next. And people don't realize how bad this is for your psyche, that what you do when you recycle your to-do lists and don't do everything on that list, and the reason I'm not a big advocate of to-do lists and why for most people they don't work that effectively, you are essentially reinforcing your identity every single day that yet again you didn't do what you said you're going to do, loser. You're teaching yourself to believe that you are a certain way, which you're not. You're just using a process that doesn't work. So instead, what we want to do is to understand why we get distracted, systematically disarm those distractions by understanding where they really come from using these four techniques, and make sure that we're not victims suffering from allowing these distractions to derail us day after day. And how do you think about, either in your personal life or working with others, alternatives to to-do lists to make sure that the right things are getting done? So step two to becoming indistractable is making time for traction. So the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction, that they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. Both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So you have on one side traction, and the opposite of traction is distraction. Traction is anything that pulls you towards what you want to do. Distraction is the opposite of that. So when it comes to the second step of making time for traction, this means that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. 
So instead of a to-do list, which is nothing more than the list of outputs, I mean, how ridiculous is it to just write out, magically, I want this to happen and this to happen and this to happen. Yeah, that's great. But where's the input? Every output needs an input. So your input is not just magically writing down the task, right? That, that doesn't work. That's not effective. What works is to plan the input. And the input is your time. And so instead of using a to-do list as nothing more than a list of outputs, you have to use it in conjunction with a time-boxed calendar. And I'll give you a link in the show notes. I built a tool. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's completely free. It's an online tool to help people build a time-boxed calendar where what I advise people to do is to turn their values into time. And I show you exactly how to do that. And when you do that, when you have a time-boxed calendar, this will change your life. It will absolutely change your life. It'll change your home life. It'll change your work life. Because now, when you have a time box calendar, you will know finally what is traction and what is distraction for every moment of your day. And this is something that's amazing. And I interviewed hundreds of people for this book over the past five years. Across the board, people who use this technique were high performers, high achievers. People who didn't were the complainers, the blamers, who somehow didn't find the time to do everything they wanted to do because they simply didn't plan ahead. They didn't realize that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So by making a time box calendar, you can sit down, for example, with your boss. This is a practice that we call schedule syncing. You sit down with your boss, You show your boss, hey, here's my schedule for the week ahead. This takes 15 minutes. Here's where I will put in all the priorities you have for me. Now, you see this other piece of paper here? This is where I've listed all the things I won't have time for because, look, it's not in my schedule. Now, what I need your help from, boss, is help me reprioritize, right? Help me figure out what on this list of things I don't have time for, what should be swapped with the things on my calendar. Why is this so effective? We've all heard this ridiculous platitude that, If you want more focus, if you don't want to be distracted, you have to learn how to say no, right? Tell people in your life, no, that's stupid, especially with your boss. Who's going to look at the person who pays their bills, right? The person who gives you your, your salary and say, no, come on, give me a break. That's very hard to do. Instead, what we should do is to let your boss be the one who says no. And by showing them your time box calendar, and again, this practice takes just 15 minutes a week. You're letting them reprioritize the task. You're giving them insights into how you spend your time. They will worship the ground you walk on if you use this simple technique. And is this time box calendar essentially a temporal view of all the things that are realistic to get done in that day or that week? Or is it less specific than that where you're blocking out work time and getting done what you need to get done in that time? It's a technique to understand how you want to spend every minute of your day. Even if that time is for non-work-related tasks. I talk about in the book how there's these three life domains of taking care of you, taking care of your relationships, and then taking care of your work. Now, most people, if they use a schedule, most people do not use a schedule at all. Two-thirds of Americans don't use any sort of a schedule. But even those who do use a schedule, maybe they'll just plan the work meetings, things like that. But I want you to plan down to the minute for all the different domains of your life based on your values. If taking care of your health is important, well, do you have time for physical exercise, for proper rest, for proper nutrition? Is that stuff in your calendar? It's not just going to happen. If relationships are important to you, is that time scheduled? I don't really care how you spend your time. What I want you to do is to spend your time according to your values and your schedule. If what you want to do is play around on Facebook or play a video game or watch a football game on TV, great. I, don't, I have no problem with that. Plan that time because here's the thing. 
most people carry around this guilt that even when they do something relaxing, in the back of their mind, oh man, I've got some emails waiting for me, or oh, I've got that thing I needed to do that's on my to-do list that I didn't get to today. If you use this technique, that goes away. You can actually enjoy what you're doing because you're not stressed about being somewhere else or doing something else. You are doing exactly what you plan to do. If it's watching that big football game, if it's communicating on Facebook or Instagram, great, no problem, as long as that's what you plan to do with your time. How do you deal with things not taking the amount of time that you thought they would? Because I know a number of folks who have tried this method, and, and that's a common complaint I hear about it. So the idea here is that it's not set in stone forever. You're a scientist experimenting with the best formulation for your week. So every week you have time on your calendar to review the week ahead. And you're going to ask yourself, do I have enough time allocated for the important things that I need to get done to live out my values? So if you find, oh, wow, that task took longer than I expected last week, well, do you have time in your calendar the week ahead to allow a little bit more time for it? So you're adjusting week to week to week based on your past experience. What we find is that when people don't use this technique, when they use the conventional technique of, oh, I'm just going to make a to-do list and I'm just going to hope that I'll find the time to do all these things on the to-do list, they end up not getting very much done. Whereas simply making the time on your calendar, the reason this is so much more effective, when you plan out that time, your only goal, your only goal is not to complete anything. Okay, let me say that again. Your goal should not be to complete the task. Your goal should be to work on a task for as long as you said you would without distraction. Finishing the task is the byproduct. And it turns out that people who master this skill of planning what they're going to do, when they're going to do it, and judge themselves solely on their ability to work with that distraction, they get more done than the people who just put stuff on a to-do list and expect that time to magically appear. Why? Because they become experts at doing what they said they would do. That's the master skill. That's a much, much more important skill than this ridiculous notion that just put stuff on a to-do list and you're going to get things done. It just doesn't work. I love it. I think time is the most precious resource we have. So to the extent that we can manage it and be intentional with what we use it for versus letting distractions get the best of it, it sounds like a great tactic. That's just step two. There's four big strategies. That's the second step. The third step that we didn't get to yet is about hacking back the external triggers. So the external triggers, these are the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things in our environment. And I tell you how to hack back your computer, how to hack back your cell phone, how to hack back meetings. Oh my God, how much time do we spend in silly meetings that don't need to be called? Emails, group chats. I show you how to make sure that you can hack back these external triggers to make sure that they serve you as opposed to you serving them in all these various environments. Hacking back the external triggers and then preventing distraction, are those two in the same or or how do you think about that last one? So the last step, the fourth step is to prevent distraction with pacts. Pacts are these pre-commitments we use, these promises we make to ourselves or other people that is the fail-safe. It's the last resort. So after we master the internal triggers, after we make time for traction, after we hack back the external triggers, the fourth step, the fail-safe, is to have these pacts in place to make sure that, worst-case scenario, we have this fail-safe technique to make sure that we don't get distracted. So what does that look like? There are three types of pacts. We have what we call an effort 
effort-packed. And effort-packed is when we put some bit of friction. We make doing a task we don't want to do more difficult. So in my household, we had this problem that my wife and I were going to bed later and later every night. And so what did we do? We went to the hardware store and we bought ourselves an outlet timer. And this outlet timer turns on and off anything that's plugged into it at a certain time of day or night. So every night in my household, the internet router shuts off at 10 p.m. Now, could I turn it back on? Of course I could. But that bit of effort, that bit of work that I would have to go in and unplug and replug means that now I have to ask myself, wait, is this really necessary or am I just surfing the web mindlessly here? So that would be an example of an effort packed. Now it's interesting after using this technique for so long, everybody already knows the internet's going to shut off at 10 p.m. And so we act accordingly and we get everything done before that time. Then the next type of pact is called a price pact, which is all about how we can use a monetary disincentive to not get distracted. And this actually comes out of the most effective smoking cessation study in history. All it required was giving people the opportunity to wager $150 that they wouldn't smoke for six months. It turned out to be more effective than nicotine patches and gums and all the conventional techniques. All it took was some kind of price pack, some kind of monetary disincentive. And I talk about how you can use that to fight distraction in your own life. And then finally, the last technique is what we call an identity pact. An identity pact is we use some kind of moniker, some kind of identity for ourselves that helps keep us on track. So this comes out of the psychology of religion. When someone calls themselves a devout Muslim or an observant Christian or even a vegetarian, when you have that kind of moniker for yourself, you become much more likely to not do what you say you're not going to do. So for example, a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and and struggle with asking themselves, ooh, should I have some bacon for breakfast? No, a vegetarian does not eat meat. It is who they are. And so we can use this very same technique in our own lives to help us become indistractable. And that's why the book is titled what it is, why I call the book Indistractable. This is your new moniker. Whether you read the book or not, if you can call yourself indistractable, meaning you're the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do, that is an identity that can help keep you on track. And it turns out we've been here before. I remember when I was a kid in the early 1980s, we had ashtrays in my living room growing up. My mom and dad had ashtrays, but they didn't smoke. Why did they have ashtrays? Because back then, if someone came to your house, they just expected to smoke in your living room. That's just what people did. It was rude to not have an ashtray available to them. Until one day, my mom told a friend who was about to smoke a cigarette in our living room, she said, oh, I'm sorry, we are non-smokers. If you want to smoke, if you could kindly go outside. Oh, this person got so offended, right? She was like, what? You're going to make me go outside to smoke? Yeah. This is called spreading a social antibody. It's about when societies have an antisocial behavior that's harming the group, we learn these new behaviors. And that's exactly what's going on today when it comes to distractions. That my goal is to help people have a moniker, have this new identity to say, you know what? I am indistractable. I'm not going to let my time and my attention and my life be controlled by others. I control for myself how I'm going to spend my life, and that is because I am indistractable. My hope is that we can spread that to other people and have the same kind of progress we had with smoking over the past several years, that this becomes something that people identify with and help others learn as well. I love that identity tactic. I haven't heard of that, but from now on, I will be calling myself indistractable. Welcome to and- the club. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Nir, so much. This has been great, and hopefully everyone will go in and read some of the more specifics that you mentioned in indistractable. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or really wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce daily content on our blog, and you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time. <laughs>